0: The Paul Leslie Hour. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, folks? It is another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour here on the podcast. We're here on episode number 91, I think. And we're getting ever so closer to that episode number 100. A lot of you know that originally this show started on the radio. It's had a couple of incarnations on different stations, but the podcast is very cool in that it reaches people from all over. In some ways it was like starting over, but one of the cool things about a podcast is you can share stuff from the past that might be new to the listeners. Such is the case with this interview, I got a chance to interview James Torme, very passionate, very interesting guy, really has a love for the jazz art form, and you will probably get from this interview that his dedication to music is fervent. He's very, it's very infectious to hear him talk. And if you didn't guess, James Torme is the son of the late legendary Mel Torme. And I think that this interview will give you a good idea about who this great artist, James Torme, really is. So let's dive in. The man we have here is James Torme. He's a singer and recording artist. I've been listening to his music for quite a while, and I've just been allowing it to kind of brew in my mind. And now we finally get to talk.
1: Well, what fun. Thank you for having me, Paul.
0: It's an honor. I think most stories are best from the beginning. If you could kind of paint a picture with words, what was it like growing up, your formative years?
1: Well, of course, to me, it was totally normal. But I guess what happened is I I got to spend a lot of time with a lot of people from this business, show business. And I sort of osmosized a lot of their sort of on- and off-stage essence, I think, including, of course, my father. And that's just not normal to, you know, we'd be at the house and everyone from Olivia de Havilland to Mel Brooks to Gene Hackman to Robert Loggia uh, would come over and hang out and, you know, Betty White. It was just a generation where you couldn't help but osmosize to use a ridiculous word, a lot of that. And I think that it sort of comes pouring out of me when, like, I step to a microphone on a stage or in a studio to this day. I think that was unusual, and the funny thing about it is that it was all very normal to me, of course, at the time. So as an adult, I look back and I realize, wow, you know what I mean? Like that was Miles Davis, you know, I should have really been relishing that or that was Edward G. Robinson, (laughs) Robinson, or, you know what I mean? And so one realizes, I think a little later in life, just how lucky one was, but it was incredible. I mean, to be a child and see my father, you know, doing his third and fourth standing ovation encore, you know, at the Hollywood Bowl for like the 10th or 12th year in a row. (laughs) If you weren't inspired by that, I think there'd be something wrong with you. So basically, you know, I've sort of treated my own life like a lunar expedition into this sort of environment of my dad's life in a lot of ways. And I know I've done that for a number of reasons, partly to keep me close to him just on an emotional level, partly because I have so much of his circuitry musically that uh, it's just irresistible for me. I'm as natural, I think, a singer as my father. So, you know, there'd be no reason for me to hold back on what is natural to me. But a lot of it comes out of that childhood and out of growing up, not only around my father and seeing him perform so many times, going out on the road with him, of course, which I did, my sister Daisy and I did plenty of. (laughs) I learned to, you know, skateboard up and down the hallways of the Desert Inn in Vegas, (laughs) much to the extreme annoyment of everyone else that was staying there. But in other words, you know, it wasn't a typical way to uh, grow up, but it was just completely normal to me. These, you know, the people I was mentioning earlier, which, of course, there's a way longer list than that. You know, they were sort of, you know, just uncles and aunts, really funny friends, my parents, and later it's like, oh, I now realize that you're one of the geniuses of your field. (laughs) But, you know, I try to use it all, you know what I mean, everything I was exposed to, and of course, uh, a bit of uh, good old genetic manifestation, and do something with my own career that's at least equal. I've never been interested in anything that wasn't sort of at least on an equal quality level from what, my dad was able to produce. And so, for me, you know, it's uh, my life has been really interesting. Uh, it's, I've had, obviously, I've been very fortunate and had a lot of success myself so far in my singing career. But I never forget where the inspiration came from, which is really my father, his peers, being immersed in a lot of really great music, and films and theater that I was exposed to uh, as a result of really both sides of my family. I'm a second-generation show business person on one side and a fourth-generation show business person on the other side, my British side. My mother and grandmother, both well-known British actresses. And so uh, if you put it all together, and I, I hope to be, you know, successfully sort of doing right by all of those people by paying forward a lot of that. You
0: mentioned that being exposed to all of these showbiz icons, it became kind of normal for you. You know, just, hey, that's that's somebody that my parents know and I know.
1: Yeah, that- I mean, I'd, be on the, I'd grow up on the knees of these people. George Shearing, Buddy Rich, you know what I mean? Artie Shaw, Jerry Mulligan. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> wow. You know, it wasn't even until I was about 12 or 13 that I really realized how ridiculously talented like my own dad was. Hmm. And that's when I caught the bug. You know, when everybody else was listening to uh, status Quo and Phil Collins or whatever, Mm -hmm. I was literally a junkie, a junkie of the early seventy eights and early other early records of my father's he had a jukebox in our house, a, a real world you know jukebox, which was stuffed with all kinds of amazing records that my father had uh, reacquired a sort of a collection that he 'd had as a as a young man himself, and so you know there I was, immersed in my own twenties i 'm immersed in a lot of the music from my father 's twenties, but the good news is that of course. I'm also, as you probably hear, influenced by a lot more modern influences, too, because there's a lot of my father in me, but we're not the same person at all. So I have all of those influences, though, from just becoming addicted to sort of, especially the early part of my father's career, when I was about 15 years old. And then, of course, that is combined with a ton of other influences from my own childhood years, which of course is the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. So you put all of that together, and I think what you get really, and, uh, and I'm proud of this, is an evolution, an evolution of, quote unquote, the Torme sound. You know what I mean? And my dad's era in general. It's something that's got the type of uh, embellishments in it and some of the styling... Uh, you know, that's influenced by, you know, Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Steely Dan and things like that. So what it, what you have is an evolution of that that can be competitive in today's music market. And that's sort of James Torme right there, I guess.
0: <laughs> Going back to this Wurlitzer, can you think of particular songs that when you think back it resonates very strongly. A few of the songs oh, of that, course. yeah,
1: and they were mostly dad recordings. Okay, they were they were things like the early Artie Shaw recordings that my dad did with the Meltones and Artie Shaw, like "What Is This Thing Called Love," which were, by the way, my my father's first ever solo recordings. That Artie very kindly gave my dad saw something in my dad and gave him an opportunity, a guy who was as much a drummer as a singer when he arrived here in Los Angeles in about 1943. And, you know, my dad was offered the drum chair in the Krupa and Kenton bands and had to turn those down because his own vocal group was already taking off. I don't know if a lot of people know that. But bring me back to what I was telling you about. What, what, what was the exact question there?
0: We were We were, well, I was wondering about the particular songs in this jukebox that,
1: Really, oh yeah, really so gotcha. that one, uh, and another one, which was from that same batch of recordings on Musicraft, I believe it was, with Artie Shaw, early '40s, and there's a great recording of my dad singing one of his very first solo performances. It's called "Get Out of Town," and it's uh, just a haunting recording. And then, of course, there's a, a, <laughs> they're mostly dad recordings that really affected me on that jukebox. Another one I remember really clearly is a crazy, scat, fast, high-paced version of Night and Day uh, that my dad recorded really early in his career on either choral or maybe, again, on MusiCraft. This is before he ever signed to Capitol or Verve or anyone else. And so, uh, you know, those songs are ones that stick with me. My dad's recording of Blue Moon, which, of course, is a legendary recording at this point in time. The incredible uh, arrangement on that... Those are all things I just played no end. The Surrey with a fringe on top, I remember I used to play a lot on that machine. Interestingly, my brother Tracy, my older brother, owns that machine to this day. So once in a while, I go over to his house in Beverly Hills and uh, have at it for an hour or two.
0: You know, it was about a week ago, and I was listening to tons and tons of Merle Haggard, and I thought it was interesting that all of his son's, All of them are singers. Not not a one is not. And with the Torme family, there's you and, as you mentioned, your brother and your sister. Right. Are you all close?
1: Well, our oldest brother, Steve, who's 20 years older than me, and he wasn't raised by our dad so much. He was raised by his mother and stepfather, who's another guy you've probably heard of, Hal March. Yeah. He was the uh, host of some big shows like the $64,000 Question, and uh, he had already been in several things, musicals and various things. I believe he was in It's Always Fair Weather, the great musical with Donald O'Connor, another regular Torme home guest, by the way, with his wife Gloria, Donald, Donald O'Connor, and Gene Kelly. But uh, Hal was an amazing guy, but he really raised Steve, which I think put a strain on... Steve and our father's, you know, relationship and they only really sort of reconciled properly very near the end of my father's life. He lives in Wisconsin, so we don't see a huge amount of him, but no, all the Torme siblings are, are close and um, particularly close with Daisy, who is my full sibling. She's four years older than me and she's a, she's a great actress and uh, screenwriter and does one of the busiest uh, voiceover artists in L.A. And uh, we sort of share my, or our company, which is Torme Entertainment. So we do a lot of projects together, which is great. Um, we're actually working on a, a television project right now that we've, we're beginning to put the final touches on a script for. And so, um, yeah, and then Melissa, who is another half-sister, a little under 20 years older, full sister to Steve, so she, she grew up in Scarsdale, New York with Steve and Candy, who was my father's first wife. So they just had a little bit of a different upbringing, you know, whereas the three youngest of us, Tracy, who I mentioned, who's, by the way, an incredible Peabody award-winning writer, he created the series Sliders, he was the head writer on Star Trek The Next Generation, things like that. The three of us were really, I think, really more close with with Dad for obvious reasons.
0: We're joined by jazz singer and recording artist James Torme. I want to ask you about going into the recording studio for the first time to make your album, the first album of your career. You know, something I think is kind of interesting is Frank Sinatra Jr. being the son of Frank Sinatra and you being the son of Mel Torme. His album, his very first album, that is, was called Young Love for Sale. And your album, Love for Sale, the great song. That's really
1: funny. I never knew that. That's great.
0: You didn't know that.
1: No, but I did have a lot of respect for Frank Jr. You know, we're massively different, of course. I think Frank Jr. really stuck with pretty much exactly the sort of texture and sound and arrangements and even vocal sort of sound of, like, his father. I think that he suffered at the hands of that, in terms of not getting the separation that perhaps he deserved. But, uh, no, a lot of respect for him, because he was a very talented musician. I can't believe his first album was called that. That's really funny.
0: I wondered if maybe it was like a a subtle nod, (laughs) kind, kind of.
1: Not really, to be completely... To be brutal about it, I, I've I've definitely strut, uh, striven for, for separation from any other people who are sons or daughters of anyone else. And I don't really like to identify myself as Mel Torme's son. Right. I, I owe him too much. I'm really more James Torme, the vocalist in my own right, and sometime actor and radio host and various other things, who happens to be the son of another you know, a great singer. So, yeah, I feel um, I've had a few opportunities in the past to uh, do some things which were uniquely, you know, like a group of people that were all sons and daughters of famous people and tend to shy away from that, to be honest with you. But there are very talented offspring of legendary, you know, sort of jazz royalty and all kinds of people like that that are very talented there's no question about it i think it's tough sometimes to be you know a second or indeed a third generation and not uh, experience sort of a lot of skepticism out of out of the media in fact i've been very lucky in my career with reviews so i really have but but there was one reviewer in the early part of my career i think it was a guy from the from the buffalo news and he said, I have to admit, I had a sneer at the ready when I listened to James Tormey's album. In other words, how dare he even be a singer when you're following on sort of, you know, from this sort of great genius? And he went on to say that in actual fact, he thinks I'm unreal. <laughs> so that was nice. But the point is, is that, is that it was just interesting to hear a journalist even admitting that. I think that it's probably very common to either be overlooked, judged way too harshly, you know what I mean, or just not really have people's generosity of spirit. Uh, If you are one of those people that is trying to, you know, kind of have a career based on tributing your famous parent, Hmm. you know, I will be doing various things in my career. In fact, I have a wonderful television special coming up later in the year with all kinds of famous people joining me, from George Benson to Take Six to Dave Cause, Patty Austin, which is, uh, which is, which is about saluting uh, a lot of the music that my father made famous and sort of his story. But it isn't what my career is about, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so, so you know, there's always a temptation to base one career sort of on another, I just never wanted to do that. I just it didn't suit me. So in the end I really strive for separation, the separation I was talking about, and I feel that I've accomplished that because you know, there is a lot of stuff I do that my dad would never have done musically and you know, yeah, there's we're just very different as well as having the very obvious overlap if you're musical and you have good ears, you're going to hear a lot of that, <laughs> but that's not exactly a big problem for me. I'm happy to have the textures that I have. I'm I'm happy that my voice box, you know, has its similarities to my father's because, quite frankly, he's my favorite singer of all time. Mm -hmm. So I've grown up thinking that the way that he sings is the way to sing.
0: Who would you say has been the biggest mentor to you?
1: Well, that's a really good question and one that I have been asked way too seldom. There have been a few mentors. In some ways, my father has been a mentor... Because advice he gave me when he was still alive and things that I've read and seen in interviews, which I'm constantly researching, (laughs) I'm probably the world's most nerdy Mel Torme archivist, have really helped me. Things that he's, uh, you know, philosophical things, different sayings even, you know what I mean, that I've ended up living by and sort of like mantras, if that makes sense. Just things like, if you rest, you (laughs) rust. And um, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Oh, yeah. My dad believed in that. Uh, He also thought that there were only two types of people, decent and indecent. Hmm. And things like, if it's for you, it won't go by you. Hmm. That's an old Scottish saying, actually. Things like that. The best revenge is revenge. (laughs) (laughs) Good... But, so, uh, in other words, so, you know, there are many philosophical things, not just music philosophy and music choices, but life philosophy that my dad really, really gave me. My dad believed that if you're wrong, you should really admit it. <laughs> and you don't see a whole lot of that in today's culture. No. Uh, you you really have to own things. The way my dad would say, if you make a mistake, if you did something wrong, you say, you know what? I'm sorry. I goofed. That's what he was saying. (laughs) And if you can't do that, you know, you're not a man, is basically what he told me. Hmm. Other mentors included other people who I was lucky enough, you know, to grow up around. Many of them were teachers who saw, you know, potential in me and, Cast me in all kinds of things when I was a kid. The great Roger Burnley, who's an amazing vocal coach who I studied under for about 10 years. He has been a tremendous mentor to me. Sort of a mother hen of a man, if you will. So I've had a few people that have definitely, you know, the thing is, is that my father hasn't been around for any of my career. So even though he knew that I had the musicality, he absolutely knew that. That sort of like his. You know, that was something that we took for granted. I mean, the two of us would sit around and sing harmonies to things like you could never believe. But he, he hasn't been around for, you know, alive for really any of my career, which has only really been going on in sort of the last 10 years. And he's been gone for, wow, you know what I mean? Coming up going to be 20 years in a couple more years. So it's been interesting because I'm actually, you know, I'm self-educating. I'm out there on this, as I said, you know, this sort of Apollo mission. It's helped me to understand a lot about my father's life. It's helped me to glean various philosophies and, and bits of wisdom the way my father did too, I'm sure, being a working singer out on the road and a recording artist and in show business and with all of his dealings. At the end of the day, I feel like, yeah, I feel like I am ultimately being a somewhat of a walking, breathing salute to a lot of things that I really value. And um, my father's era, his peers, good music, if that makes sense to you. And so, um, so you know, there's a, there's a lot that I've picked up by way of the life that I've chosen, and which is far from glamorous. I'm always telling people. But yet, absolutely has its moments. I've had some wonderful privileges, you know what I mean, as a singer, performing with all kinds of major symphony orchestras and the greatest jazz festivals and amazing venues. So I'm here in Los Angeles, and I, you know, I I'm proud to say, you know, I'm a person who's played the Greek theater. Me and Al Jarreau and Brian McKnight and played you know, Walt Disney Hall with Philharmonic. So those are privileges, and um, every show is special to me, but um, it's all a learning process, and I think I'm picking up a lot of the stuff that I would have picked up just to kind of tie up this answer to your question. I think I'd pick up a lot of the stuff I would have picked up if my dad was alive and, and here to sort of shepherd me a little bit more just by going out and doing it. And, and and being in the field. And I bet I'm coming to a lot of the same conclusions, you know what I mean, as my father did.
0: You mentioned these different places that you have performed. No matter where you are, that someone would be seeing a concert of yours, what do you want the person in the audience, the person who's listening and watching, what do you want them to get from the experience of seeing a James Tourmay concert?
1: I design my concerts very carefully. for me, there are a few apexes that I want to make sure to reach in a concert. In other words, I want everybody I want everybody to experience uh, the phenomenon of romance through wonderful music uh, that can be personal romance that can be r- personal uh, nostalgia uh, romanticizing. Uh, memories or maybe it's just an entire vibe that's being created that just gives you a certain emotional response. So that could be a personal thing. Or of course it can be, you know, with maybe somebody else that they came to the concert with, you know, a romantic partner. And uh, I mean, I've had people tell me that, you know what I mean? I've had a lot of claims made by fans, you know, you saved our marriage tonight and things like that. Wow. A lot of men also saying thank you. I just want to say thank you, and I I'm like, oh, I have to guess what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but, but bottom line is is that um, yeah, I want the audience to experience something that's different from anything they've ever seen before. That's really important to me, and they're gonna get that because they're gonna get all these influences. You know what I mean? That are so unique to the way I've grown up. I also want them to have the first thing we talked about, which is, uh, you know, I want them to be moved. I want them to be moved emotionally in the direction of like a pulling on a heartstrings type of being moved. Okay. But then I also want them to laugh. So I want them to laugh. And I also, I also kind of want them to cry a little bit. I want them to feel that part of the concert, you know, there are songs that are dirges for lost loves. Or certain blues songs that when I sing them, I really want the people to feel the pain that went into creating the original piece of copyright. I feel that I'm doing justice to it if I'm, you know what I mean, like pulling that emotion out of a song. So I literally want them to laugh at one point. I want them to, I want them to tear up at another point, and I want them to have, be filled with joy and sort of nostalgia and just an emotional boost, you know what I mean, at another point. And, and I want them to leave feeling like it was just totally unique. Well, I mean, a person once said to me, you know, and, and I, I say this in a very secular way, he once said to me, man, that con- it was actually from a record label. He said, I, I just, I, when I went to your concert, I came out there and I felt like I'd done something good for myself. I felt like I'd gone to church or something. And I said, you know, that is one of the greatest compliments I could ever get. Oh, yeah. And and uh, because what they weren't, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't being weird. They were just saying that, you know, I actually felt a spirituality. And there is absolute spirituality. I mean, deep levels of spirituality run through the veins of jazz music, my friend. So... I feel like I've done my job if people have that effect, you know what I mean? And they come out of there like feeling like they're a slightly different person from before they ever went to the concert.
0: How do you define jazz? (laughs)
1: That's another loaded but very good question. Well, for me, jazz is very much about freedom. In other words, there's a lot of definitions. You could musically define it, or you could define it historically, right? Jazz is the ultimate American art form and one of the most precious gifts we ever gave the rest of the world as Americans. Okay? Although freedom, in the case of World War II, is probably a close second. Jazz is freedom. It's freedom to explore. It's freedom, you know what I mean, within within the form of music that you're performing or writing or recording to improvise and express individual, you know, personal musical ideas within within a given framework or chord structure, mind you. And so that it can be applied to just about any piece of music. So I could sit down right now and create a jazz version of you know Stairway to Heaven. Or MC Hammer's Can't Touch This, or the, the latest song from Zayn Malik or something, if I wanted. The guy from One Direction, in case you don't know who that is. But, like, it's just kind of how you approach it. So all you have to really do is take any song and open it up to interpretation or what we call embellishment. I think we were talking about embellishment earlier which is sort of like personalizing the way that you play the chords, the timing, and the chord sequence itself, you know? The way that the chords tell the story. And then we'll substitute interesting jazz chords for the rather more simple chords, and perhaps like a pop song. Change the tempo, and voila, you have a jazz spin-off of that song. But the important thing, which I want to get back to, is spontaneity. So it's really about being creative and being off the cuff and open to a lot of embellishment, you know what I mean, within a pre-existing, in many cases, a pre-existing framework. Sometimes there's no framework at all. I've sat in on a 12-minute musical odyssey with a Brazilian sextet here in L.A. one time, uh, You know where there really, I could tell that there really was no chord pattern it was just finding its own way, but if you could use your musicality enough, you could make sure that you're always staying within within what's available in, in the chords that are being played. I find I can do that. My father thought you had to know the melody backwards and forwards of any song and know the chord sequence backwards and forwards before you could really scat sing over it, which is the way that we singers sort of solo in jazz. But I don't agree with that. I can just pretty much go for it, you know what I mean? And it's just hearing what's happening and just quickly adjusting to it as it happens. But right there, what I'm discussing right there, that's jazz. You know, you don't find a lot of that in other forms. Or it's more predetermined. I mean, in classical, there just isn't that. You don't don't hear individual embellishments like that very often. There are one or two times I think in classical music where A viola player or somebody will be invited to literally just solo, but it's very uncommon. It's mostly all predetermined. And so when music fails to be predetermined and is more open-ended, it gives us a chance to go a little further with what we're trying to do as actual artists and to advance the conversation, if that makes any sense.
0: Absolutely something that you mentioned earlier you you were
1: saying I have no idea if I answered your question
0: you, or not. you did you did and you did okay. very well
1: thank you okay
0: you mentioned earlier you said people have this idea sometimes that being a, an artist or being an entertainer is a very glamorous thing and there's a lot of it that's not glamorous so what oh. is it that people are not seeing <laughs>
1: I love you for this question, okay? I wish everyone would ask this question. This is such a great one. You know, Paul, I say that the concerts are free, okay? So I get a decent amount of money sometimes to do a concert, and I say, you know what? The actual performance is completely free of charge. You're just paying for the hotel lobbies and the airports and the, taxi and the Uber here. And Oh, this town doesn't even have Uber? Okay, uh, let's go to the uh, Coco's and see if we can convince one of the waitresses to drive us to the airport in the morning. Oh, she only has a Honda Civic? Uh, that's not going to work. In other words, that's what I'm being paid for. And I'm perfectly happy to do the concerts. It's the schlepping that I'm talking about, and a lot of places that I uh, tend to also play, you know, there are several different connections away and kind of sometimes hard to get to. So it's just a lot of time, you know, sort of traveling and away from home. My dad coined the phrase, absence makes the heart go wander. <laughs> So you have to understand the sacrifice that it it is to be a touring musician. It's kind of like being in the armed forces. And so relationships suffer. Families suffer from the lack of consistency. That is something that my dad really, really, you know, was damaged by. I mean, he literally, three of his four marriages, you know, were probably concluded because of that. So that was one of the reasons that my own father and my mother and stepfather at least 3 of my 4 parents made efforts to talk me out of a life as my father put it banging my head against a wall being an artist, you know what i mean? He he literally would liken the life of an artist to standing and like banging your head against a frying pan. <laughs> you know what i mean? And so You know, every parent basically tries to be responsible because, you know, the inevitable time when any 10-year-old suddenly starts saying that they want to be a pop star or something. The only difference with me is that it just never went away. I really meant it. You know what I mean? When I was 10 years old, I was completely 100% sure that I was going to be doing something professionally that involved music and more specifically singing. I had a sense of destiny about it because I could feel my own gift. I could feel that I had that. And so, you know, I just sat through those lectures. Oh, you'll never be able to even be successful. It's so much more competitive now that if you go into this business, it's the same chances as entering the lottery, I was told. (laughs) Fortunately, I, I guess I've won the lottery several times since then. But... And I'm grateful for that, but oh yeah, I major efforts were made to hold back my desire to to really sort of do music as my career. I think that you know my, my stepfather, a wonderful man, actually, I'm about to head over to the u k for what I hope will be my fifth in a row sold out tour over there, and I'm going to get to see him in a few days, but he is an incredible guy, one of the top senior bureau chiefs for many years of Time magazine. He really wanted me to be a journalist, you know, and so it was disappointing to see me being in some people's minds sort of poisoned by having a genius father. But the the reality is that it's really not about that. It's 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 much more about the essence of who I am. And as you probably have discovered in your own life, Paul, No matter how hard you try, it's awfully hard to run away from the actual essence of who you are.
0: That's very true.
1: And and I'm telling you, all across the country, there are people, some of whom it is who they are to be this, to do kind of like what I do. And they've got their parents sitting there saying, oh, you really shouldn't do that. And, you know, I feel for them because I sat through those lectures. I, w- I was told that I would be just a, not just that it wouldn't be likely that I'd be successful, but that if I reached, and I quote, the zenith of that field, don't expect a pat on the back from us because we don't really respect that. So for me, one of the great journeys of my life was overcoming the disapproval of like my parents who sort of didn't want another dad basically coming along. and. So that's a huge thing, if you think of that, overcoming that. Although I have to be honest with you, I struggle with that every time I walk on a stage. For a moment, I'm struggling against the fact that it sort of wasn't what my parents wanted. And I think that's so normal and so common to want to please your parents. And if it so happens that they didn't want to support the thing that you love, maybe to the degree that you would have liked you know, you've got to be able to let go, and you know, I think in time when you're successful, your parents are relaxed suddenly. You know, and they're like, "Oh, we were just now that you're actually successful doing that, where we want to be your managers." You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but but it was a major thing to get over. Major thing, the sort of disapproval, almost a journalistic disapproval that you see from journalists towards people in show business all the time, right?
0: Hmm. Well, with this introspection that you've done, this journey that you've done in your life, how would you come to define James Tourmay?
1: I think that I'm a warrior for really high quality music and musicianship and for the type of culture that I was lucky enough to grow up around and consequently I treasure. Some people call me the Prince of Jazz, but to be completely honest with you, the music that I do, I mean, specifically my brand new album, which will be out in a couple of months, it's called Strange Little Planet. It's much beyond jazz, if that makes sense. It's Sure, it's rooted in jazz sophistication. I call it Sophistipop, the music that I do now. Hmm. And my new album, which is sort of, going to be seen along the lines of things like pentatonics and Take Six is absolutely a record that goes way outside of just jazz. So, in reality, you know, in some ways maybe I'm Pop's gift to jazz. Interesting. You know, and then some people say that I'm a Mel Torme for now. So there's a few different ways to look at how you would define me, and I kind of have to leave it to other people, but those are some of the things people say. You know, I, I like to think of myself as a leader in terms of the music community, somebody who supports middle school and high school jazz bands. Like I'll show up at competitions and things, and just sit way in one of the back rows, and no one will ever even know I'm there. But I'm just there because I want to be there to support the new generation of of young jazz players. Yeah, I'm. I'm you know, some, some people would say, some people would say that I'm 40 years too late or something. You know what I mean? So maybe they'd say I'm a throwback of some kind. But really, I'm not. Really, there's a lot of modern influences in in what I do. And I think people will definitely be hearing that on the new album. So that's really exciting. You know, it's an exciting time for me right now because I'm sort of embarking on this sort of second phase of my career. And that's a musical departure as well in some ways. I won't be leaving jazz behind in any way, shape or form, but I will be expanding out to where I'm taking jazz sophistication and making it pop. One of my big goals is to make jazz pop again, period. Like, when my father was my age, jazz was still pop. The rock and roll insurgency was in full swing when my father was my age, because we're talking about the early 60s. However, jazz was still pop. If you, if you go to Monterey, California, and spend time in that town, you'll realize that jazz is still pop there. It never went away. So in other words, it's like, What people think is the hottest thing, the coolest thing, the newest thing, the greatest thing, I want that to be jazz. And there's no reason that can't happen. You look at Michael Buble's tour, it's the number one tour in the world. Really? Number one. Biggest, most successful, most money-making tour, like the last, one of the last couple tours that he did. What does that tell you? What it tells you is that there's an unbelievable market for the type of music that he and I do. Not that it's quite the same, but we are sort of related. And it tells you that there's very few people that are really just doing it on like the highest level in maybe the male vocalist area with major backing. It's just, there's just a dearth of that. There's very few people. So I'm, I'm part of a group that's really small. Really small. It's like four or five people that I believe belong in the group I'm talking about, you know. But are there a market for that? Of course. And and God bless Michael Buble and Jamie Cullum and, you know, even Diana Krall and a few other people, Nora Jones, who have proven that again and again. So I've always sort of known that there was going to be that that career for me. I kind of just know deep in my heart that that was just, it was going to be there, but I don't think that necessarily was going to be the case if it wasn't for some of these other people paving the way. So I'm really grateful for them. They are the prelude to anything that, you know, I'm, I can accomplish in this kind of a genre, in this kind of a style, with these types of, uh, this type of musicality, you know, in 2017, 2018.
0: I was going to ask you who amongst your peers are the ones that you respect and you said Diana Krall, Jamie Cullum
1: Oh yeah, I mean I I respect them for sure. I respect Michael Bublé. I respect a, a lot of different musicians that are currently out now and some of the, you know, the what's now becoming the old guard. I love people like George Benson who I'm going to be doing not only a concert but a concept album with soon. I love D.D. Bridgewater, I, I know all of Quincy Jones' music. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for people that are way younger than my dad, but they're not necessarily my peers. And then amongst my peers, I mean, there's I have a lot of peers. I mean, one, one of the peers who I respect the most is the person who was the lead producer on my album, and he's, his own new album is actually up for three Grammys this year, and that's John Diversa. And John Diversa is one of the great Miles Davis level sort of composer, arranger, producers. He's exactly my age. He's a year older than me. He's amazing. He, runs the, he actually runs the, he's the head of jazz at the Frost School of Music, you know, the famous Frost School of Music at the University of Miami uh, right now. But he's been a tremendous kind of a mentor to me and at the same time somebody that I just really respect Renee Alstead who's a great singer who I sometimes do show with, shows with I have a lot of respect for you know I, I don't know if you'd know all of the people that I could mention but Brenna Whitaker who's just done her new record with David Foster on Verve Records his new sort of discovery she's she's sort of known as the female James Torme in some ways in Los Angeles But she's an amazing singer who looks like a young Sharon Stone and sings like Peggy Lee or somebody. So she's amazing. Uh, Esperanza Spaulding, I think, is a really good artist. You know, and I like a lot of artists outside of jazz. You know, I have a lot of respect for like Bruno Mars and D'Angelo, Maxwell, Jamiroquai as I mentioned earlier, you know, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Earth, Wind and Fire. Those were things that my father enjoyed a lot too. And then I've just got a lot of other influences. I mean honestly Paul, we could do this all day. Like I have so many influences. I'm influenced by people like Todd Rundgren and Elvis Costello. You know, Cyndi Lauper. So it just goes on and on. You know, so many bands from like the eighties the Cars, Wang Chung, <laughs> Talking Heads. Uh, so I've just, I've really had a rich well to draw from that, that has a lot of different textures in it. And that has been, I think, a great thing for me because, you know what I mean, it's allowed my music to really be individual, uh, but also to reflect a lot of things that I think people out in an audience are picking up on. So it's just a total privilege every time. You know, every show is special to me, I have to tell you. I I remember every audience. I I just don't know if I'm going to do it again. Like, every time I do it, I'm like, in the world we're living in now, I don't know if I'll be doing this again. So, basically, you know, I want to enjoy every moment just the way I want the audience to, and and I do that.
0: Well, I hope I'm amongst the audience at some point. I hope you make it out to the Southeast for this, this upcoming album.
1: Oh, I'm sure I will, and I really look forward to it. I hope that we get a chance to hang out in person a little bit, Paul.
0: Oh, that would be great.
1: Thank you so much for having me on oh. your show.
0: Oh, it's a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure. You're very passionate and very interesting.
1: Oh, thanks, man. I I try. <laughs> you know, life is not a, a dress rehearsal, right? So I, I really, if I'm interested in something, I go the whole way with it. You know what I mean? And my father was just the same way, by the
0: way. Well, Mr. Torme, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone out there, if they want more information, they can visit com. Yeah,
1: I have some American shows coming up, uh, East Coast and West Coast, in July, August, and going through the rest of the year. So look forward to seeing people, and they can register their email right on that website, and then they'll get alerts when I come to their area, little show alerts. So if they want to do that, they can do that right there on the home page of my website.
0: All right, James. Well, it was lovely to talk to you, and I'll look Thank forward you, to the next time.
1: Absolutely. I'll look forward to it as well. All right. Take, Take care, you. my friend. Bye-bye. All right, you too.
0: The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaullesley.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.